Hey everyone, this is Matt Kamen, your host of Nonprofit on the Rocks and co-founder of Envision Consulting, which is a national firm doing executive search and strategy work for nonprofits. And with us, as always, is Ashley Watterson, our OK producer. How are you, Ashley? I'm doing great, Matt. I, um, I'm not going to lie, I did some day drinking today. That's not something I normally do. But I was at a Mexican restaurant having sort of a day date with my husband, which we never do. And I had a margarita, Matt. And you know what? During Omicron, I think it's totally fine to day drink. Well, I'm taking a few things out of this, Ashley. The first is, are you trying to tell everybody who's listening that you need a margarita to get through lunch with your husband, Mark Watterson? <laughs> no, no, that wasn't at all what I meant. I just meant that during these unprecedented times, it's okay to day drink, yeah. not to get through the date with my husband. Well, I will have you know, Ashley, that I will never have a dry January, but I do not drink pre four o'clock this month. I want to give a shout out to my husband. I do. Okay. I want to give a shout out because I feel like with Philip, we don't all the time say fantastic things about him. Is that is that a fair statement? It's fair. We talk a lot about Mark and Philip in sort of you know, just joking ways. True. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't need booze to get through a lunch of mine, but what <laughs> I want you to know, Ashley, is that we have uh, mice that for whatever reason, like to come into our house. And a few months ago, one decided to commit suicide literally right under my side of the bed is that Philip last night, not only went under the house, put a trap under the house. And then today, took it out with the dead route. Okay, so many questions here. First, shout out to Philip for that because seriously, I would have called pest control. And then really though, it was your sentiment that this rodent committed suicide. And I wondered what made you think it wasn't just natural causes? Like, why did you call it suicide? I think that said ro rodent decided that he or she, do rodents are he or she, right? You would think <laughs> yes. you're he or a rodent. Yes, they, the, the females give birth. Yeah, these are not asexual creatures. Do you think that rodents can be gay? Hmm. I know penguins can. How do you know? How do you know penguins well, can be Penguins are known to mate for life. I, and I know that they've had evidence of like at least two male penguins that like mate for life. And our partners. Hmm. So I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not the expert, but I, I do believe that is factually correct. <laughs> I kind of wonder how that mechanics of that work. And like, if the beat gets in the way, I just am so, they don't have hands. Like, <laughs> I, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't know how they tell each other apart to begin with. Honestly, I don't know enough about the anatomy of penguins. Do they know that they are gay? Like, is, are they just like, what, you're not a female? This whole time I thought you were a female. I, I don't know. See, see, it's so confusing. And I have no idea what we were talking about. Oh, we're so talking the about rodent, the, yeah, the mouse. The rodent. So the, as far as I'm concerned, committed suicide because he was giving me a message. I don't know who was sending it, but it's noted that he wanted to commit suicide. And I, I use this word literally under my pillow. Oh, under, under your pillow? Underneath the floor. It was like oh. under my floor. <laughs> underneath my pillow. Okay, just for our listening audience, because there was a moment there where I thought the rodent was under your pillow, but it was under your pillow, under the mattress, under the box spring, 
under the bed, under the floor. I got it. But still, but still technically under your pillow. I smelled it as if it were under my pillow. So yeah. So what I'm understanding from, from this whole story is that Philip was the hero who removed the mouse from under your pillow and went under the house to set a trap for it and, and yeah. caught it, caught yeah. the remaining rodents. Which goes back to my original shout out to my husband. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think we should write into CNN that the next time they feature heroes, like everyday heroes or something, I think Philip might be in contention. Yes. So I think what was really amazing about this interview coming up is what I learned is that I'm not the only bad student out there. And the executive director of an education nonprofit in LA was also a terrible student with me. I I love this upcoming interview so much because the whole time I'm listening to you talk about being like mediocre, bad students, having other things other than academics on your mind at all times, I am 1000% in that camp. And I also love this episode because before I took this really important job as podcast producer, I was a school teacher. Uh, I don't know if people knew that. Yeah, I taught middle school. I honestly cannot imagine being a teacher right now, Matt. I can't. I love that job and I poured myself into it. It's an impossible job under normal circumstances, though. And under these trying times, teachers are frontline workers. They really are. So just having Michelle give the shout out that she did to teachers was awesome. And I want to remind everybody that at the end of all of our episodes, we do an outro. And in today's outro, I do want to talk about how Michelle and I talked about checking in with your boss every once in a while, checking in with your kid's teacher every once in a while. I think that was really important and something I'm looking forward to talking to you about. Awesome. Yeah, that that will be great. And we'll do that in the outro. But let's get to the episode with Michelle Brodnax, Executive Director of the Los Angeles Education Partnership. Hello, my friend, Michelle Brodnax. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you today? Well, I'm not allowed to timestamp these shows, but I do it anyway, because I don't listen to Ashley. And as you know, Omicron is destroying all of our lives. So I am yes. drinking heavily. <laughs> well, that's one way of coping, right? That's one <laughs> way of getting through everything. Slightly intoxicated and ready for the world. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times my partners on Envision get so mad at me for talking about drinking on these shows. So, <laughs> uh, and it's never going to stop. So here we are. And as you know, as this is a happy hour, what are you drinking? I am drinking a uh, vodka and orange juice on the rocks. And I have to share with you, I am not a um, cocktail maker, if you will. So this is, I'm very proud of myself for putting this together and it is quite good. I'm very proud of you too. And a very big cheers to you. A happy cheers. and healthy 2022 to Omicron. Just getting the fuck away. Cheers. Cheers. What are you drinking, by the way? I am finishing my bottle. Oh my God, that sounds so bad. Of uh, bullet rye bourbon. I'm trying to like, I'm trying to like change it up. I don't want to keep doing bourbon all the time. I've actually gotten into beer, which is very like heterosexual of me. But, but I'm, you know, I'm just trying to switch it up. But here we are, back to bourbon. 
Here we are. I like the fact that you at least finish a bottle. At least you're like efficient, you know, and in the way that you manage your um, coping skills here, like there's some efficiencies that I appreciate. I wish, I wish I could tell you that I go bottle to bottle. I wish I could tell you that, but if you opened up my pantry, we're just going to leave it at that because yet again, I'm just going to be yelled at by all my partners. By, uh, <laughs> so I'm good. I'm good to go. <laughs> good, good, good. So, so thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. First of all, I do want to tell our listener out there that you actually are probably our, our listener. You're our listener out there. You I listen am your listener. Yeah. And it makes me so happy when like, when you reach out, you're like, Hey, that was actually a good episode. That makes my day. Good, good. And it's always nice to hear that reinforcement when you're putting something, um, your heart and soul into something and something of such high quality, right? It's great to get that bit of encouragement and feedback. And I, I love the shows. I think they're funny and engaging. And as I shared with you earlier, I hope to be a good guest and at the like minimally not be boring. Like, you know, that would just be a huge win for me. So you can't possibly be boring. You had, so you mentioned, so you emailed me yesterday and you were like, Hey, do you have like a group, uh, like a list of questions for me? And I laughed and I laughed when I, <laughs> uh, because as I told you, I am the worst student and I'm not in any way prepared. So you can't be boring because uh, we're not prepared. So it's just going <laughs> to, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. I love that. I love that. That's great. You know what? Were you a good student in school? Did you, like- was I, you know, that's a great question. I was a very curious student, but I wouldn't necessarily consider myself a traditionally good student. Slightly above average, I would say kind of landing squarely in the C plus B range pretty often, but never fully applying myself enough to kind of like land in the A range resoundingly, right? Like that's just not who I was. I was way too talkative and social and had far uh, too much to say for the rather traditional, you know, education, public school education that I experienced. So, you know, I was just in my own thing, doing my own kind of brand of, you know, getting through school, if you will. So. I, I, I appreciate the honesty because as I had, as I told all my friends, C's, sometimes D's get degrees. And I think what this was to show our audience is, and you've, now you've said it, so you've put it out there. I didn't, that you can get C's and become an executive director of a nonprofit. So absolutely you can. And you know, it doesn't mean you're not learning. You're right. Um, I did much better in graduate school and um, undergrad than I did K-12. K-12, I was bored out of my mind. And then, you know, obviously undergrad and graduate school, there is a dollar uh, amount associated with that. And my folks were like, if you're going to be here, you're going to be here and perform. So I did much better. I did what I needed to do and focused primarily on building solid relationships, which is if you focus on that, you know, when you're in school, that is definitely something you can leverage as an executive director, isn't it? Yeah, I, I tell everybody that. I feel like if you are a outgoing, happy, smart person, it's not about getting the A's in school. It's about like getting out of there and having that personality to take over an organization. And I know, by the way, Michelle, you're going to get hate mail for this, but because uh, you're in the <laughs> education world, I am not. But I don't think you need A's to... to be an executive director to run a nonprofit or really even to be successful. You just, you need to have that drive, right? 
You do. And I think that, you know, ambition and determination and persistence is not necessarily something that is, you know, a grade is assigned to it, right? And also, I, I do hope to be an inspiration for people out there who are working really hard. And a C or a B is like where, where they land. Uh, for me, it was like, maybe I wasn't paying the most attention or I wasn't the most engaged, but there are also students out there who work really hard and that's where they land. And so I think there's a place for, for everyone, you know, so long as you're determined, persistent, you have passion and drive, you'll be fine. You'll be uh, fine. I did not see the beginning of this show coming out about grades, but uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We didn't even Here have questions prepared. So you did get your graduate degree actually. And so what I'd love to know, I, I think, a, a large part of the show for me is to, to have people understand journeys of executive directors and how we get to where we do and why we do what we do. And so you do have a graduate degree. It is something that you worked your ass off to get and paid a lot of money to get. So at what point were you like, I want to get a graduate degree. This is the one I want. And this is why I want it. Yeah. Well, I will say that I had already been in the nonprofit space for a number of years when I made the determination to, you know, kind of reflect and determine like what's next for me. And it was clear that a graduate degree was necessary for me to move forward and for me to elevate in the ways that I thought I would best serve the sector. I was lucky enough and doing well enough, quite frankly, to also be invited to spend a semester abroad at Oxford. During that time, there was an exchange program. Inquiring minds want to know, when you were in England, did you date any hot English guys? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> but no, I didn't. We were really, really busy. I do recall spending time in pubs drinking uh, a cocktail called Pims. I don't know if any anybody is familiar with PIMS in your audience, but it is, it's quite, you know, the, the drink. I do remember spending time doing that and meeting some fellow students and folks then, but I wish I had spent more time dating. I wish I had. That would have been a nice outcome as well. I mean, one, two, three too many PIMS and like that British accent takes me over the edge. What can I do? <laughs> right. I imagine it should have done more for me too. But like I said, like I'm proud of myself for mixing orange juice and, and vodka. So PIMS was like whole nother level for me. So I spent my junior year abroad. So not graduate school, but at UCLA. And when you said UCLA, USC, I got a little upset for a minute. I applied to USC because why would I? But I, I spent <laughs> my junior year abroad in France and Paris. And those French guys, let me tell you. So, you know, that's what it's all about to me. Forget about the school about the guy after all. <laughs> so I'm going to take us back because this is an adult program where I can actually ask some real questions and not keep my head in the gutter. Why did you get into nonprofit to begin with? Oh gosh, it's a really interesting story in that I was encouraged by uh, a professor my first year in undergrad, and I believe it was a sociology class who was really interested in my perspective and like how I was interpreting a lot of the, the information that he was presenting. If my memory is serving me properly, he was a board member of the nonprofit that he was directing me towards. And he said, I think you should go 
and see if you can find a part-time job, like explore this. I think you would be great in this space. And I was 18 years old, you know, I was, I was a freshman and I was like, okay, I'll take a look at it. I'm game. I'm curious about this. And mind you, both of my parents, you know, my mom worked for the federal government. My, my dad worked for the state government. I had very much a government entity inclination as it related to where I should be working. And I spent time that summer working for this nonprofit and it was working with special needs kids and doing like socialization events, like taking them different places, Disneyland or to the park or to like the pool and just kind of hanging out and being social with them. And I loved it. And not only did I really enjoy the population, I just enjoyed the environment that I was working in and the relationships that were, were built with the kids as well as with my colleagues. And I was hooked. And it's, that's, that's the beginning of that journey. Do you know that that was my first job, by the way, out of college too, was working with developmentally disabled kids and adults and bringing them into social events and social programs. That was also my first job in nonprofit. I want to say that there was an episode in which I heard that and I was like, why didn't I ever know that about that? Like, why have we never talked about that? So we're twinsies. I didn't even know it. Here's what I'm going to tell everybody who's listening. Do not take a job with development disabled kids or else you will have a job and a life in nonprofit. And you don't really want to be a nonprofit. So uh... <laughs> actually it's a great introduction and such a warm environment. And how could you not fall in love with the sector with that? that on-ramp, right? That particular introduction, it's impossible not to, so. Yeah, no, no, that was actually, that was one of my favorite jobs and it's why that population is my passion, right? I've done work in every other world, but that's my passion, right? Yeah. So looking at your career and looking at your LinkedIn profile, you got to where you are through jobs and fundraising. Mm -hmm. I'd love to know why you didn't stay in fundraising. What made you want to be an executive director and not stay in fundraising? I will tell you, I love fundraising. I love the art and the science associated with it. I appreciate, again, the, the collegial environment. Like if you've met a fundraiser, you kind of know that you're interacting with a very specific personality profile. These are movers and shakers. They're driven. And I love that. And after doing it for so many years, I felt like there was an opportunity and a need for me to really stretch myself and push myself to lead outside of my comfort zone. And I was comfortable as a fundraiser, but after being in this, this sector, in this field for such a long time, I feel like you have to stretch yourself and like really think through, you know, like a long-term contribution to the space. So that was really the pivot. And I have to say part of why I love my job at LAEP is I still get to fundraise. So, you know, that was, that too was another opportunity is that I knew that I wasn't absolutely turning my back on fundraising, but that it was going to be, you know, a large component of what I still get to do day in and day out. So, yeah. I appreciate you saying that because, you know, whenever we do executive director searches, fundraising is is key. as far as I'm concerned, is the most important part of that job. And I'm always really disappointed when people apply for executive director CEO jobs and don't know how to fundraise or don't enjoy fundraising or aren't good at it. And that's 
really disappointing. You have to be a strong fundraiser in order to be an executive director, period. That's your job, but you have to talk to people and you have to be able to pick up the phone, not be afraid of a cold call, introduce yourself and like really share your passion about your organization with others. And I agree with you. It's a key component of yeah. being an executive director, CEO, hundred percent. So I want to talk about fundraising for a minute in general. I have a lot of friends who are either on boards or are founders of nonprofits. And I know there are people listening who want to start a nonprofit. And I know a lot of people are afraid of fundraising. So what makes you excited to ask people for money? I talked a little bit earlier about being a very average student, but being highly relational in school. Like I always focused on building relationships and talking to people and learning through conversation and engaging in that process. And I think that what excites me and what I think should excite anybody who's leaning into fundraising is that you have to be willing to talk to people, to lean in, to build a relationship and to really feel passionately about what you're representing because then it just makes conversation easy, right? You can, you can not know everything and still feel very comfortable. You're able to have a dialogue in such a way that you're really sharing your passion for the mission and, and the work in a meaningful way that makes people want to engage with you. And it might sound a little bit silly, but I'm always completely fascinated when people, especially when I was heavily doing um, individual giving, when people will literally open a checkbook and like write you a check. I am fascinated by that. And getting people to that place is in my mind, like a, a true joy. So. So those are the things that kind of come together for me and make fundraising interesting and engaging and compelling and critical always. So I'm a board member and I'm, you know, this is hypothetical, right? I'm a board member and I am afraid, afraid of asking my best friend for a donation. And my executive director keeps harping on me. Like you're a board member, you're supposed to fundraise. You're a board member, you're supposed to bring in dollars. You're a board member. I go talk to your friends. Okay. But I have my friends, but I'm, I'm just so reticent to do it. What do you tell me? I would say to you, talk about your passion for the mission. Don't focus on the gift or the ask. Focus on how excited you are to spend your time as a board member, how engaged you are with the program and the mission. Share your passion because people follow that. They're, they're intrigued by it and they always want to learn more. And I don't necessarily always believe, this is just my own personal philosophy, I don't necessarily believe that board members have to be closers. I believe if they're good openers and they introduce you to someone who's been duly teed up by a by a really engaging conversation from a board member, it really can be either the fundraiser or the CEO that does the, the ask, right? And, and that individual is primed up. So for my board members, for any board member, if I get out of them like a great conversation and somebody that they're bringing to me that has been excited and engaged from that conversation, that really is enough because everybody doesn't feel comfortable asking their friends for money. Like, that's the truth. I love asking people for money. Love it. But, but everybody doesn't, and they shouldn't be deterred from engaging in a piece of the process just because they don't. 
So mm. just have a great conversation and talk about what you're passionate about. I like that. I think that's really important because also if you as a board member are not willing to write a check to the organization, then your friends shouldn't be willing to write a check to your organization. So having that conversation, having that passion for the mission, so important. So important. Goes such a long way. If you could think back in your career, we'll get to LAP in a minute because I do really want to highlight your nonprofit. But if you're thinking your whole career, what is the gift that you got wherever, whichever organization that you were like most proud of? Doesn't have to be the biggest dollar amount, but what's the gift that you got that's like your biggest, proudest achievement? Oh, this was many, many years ago. I was the managing director at the time for Communities for a Better Environment, which at the time was a statewide organization that focused on environmental justice in communities of color. At the time, I don't know if this is still true, was like many nonprofits, was struggling financially, and there was a real push to activate our individual um, giving donors. And there was a donor who was an attorney. I, I don't want to mention his name, but he was a very high profile environmental attorney. And I walked in with our head of legal and we just made a pitch for support. And he opened his checkbook and wrote a $50,000 gift on the spot after that conversation. And we were probably there. We, I know we were there less than an hour. So I would say between 45 and 50 minutes. And I was like, wow, that was the most effective 50 minutes of my entire fundraising career. And at that time, anyway, and, but it was really pivotal for me because I spoke from, again, about my passion, from my heart, about the communities that the organization served. And it was probably not the most technically sound fundraising ask, but it was enough to compel that, that attorney to really support an organization that was in trouble. So that was a defining moment for me. It had to be like a 20 something years ago. And I still tell that story. So I think that was probably my favorite gift. A thousand dollars a minute. That's right. Nobody makes a thousand dollars a minute. That's amazing. That's an amazing gift. Even today, like that's an amazing gift for, you know, there was no lead in cultivation. That was our first visit. So to get that was very just generous and just an incredible experience as a professional as well. So have you, would you drop names of like the coolest donor that you ever had, like celebrity or like somebody that you met with that, like, you still remember you were like, oh my God, I can't believe like I got to hang out with that person or, you know. Part of what makes me a really good fundraiser is that I am a vault. I am not a name dropper, but I did, I will say this because, you know, it's public record. I worked for Special Olympics. So I had a lot of exposure to the Kennedy Shriver family. And I was in uh, conversation with Arnold Schwarzenegger during like his heyday. And I remember standing there in conversation, having like a little disassociative moment, if you will, in that I was like, I thought he was taller. Why am I taller than he is? Like, but it was, I know that's an awful thing to say, but, but it was such a, but it was what was going through my mind while I am trying to, you know, encourage him to continue to support 
Special Olympics, Southern California. I'm going to, I'm going to back you up. I ran, <laughs> I ran into him on a beach in LA and I also thought to myself, holy crap, this guy's really short. He was mm-hmm. like, you know, very like buff and smoking a cigar, but so short. And you're right. Like that was like very striking. So no, I, I completely, there you go. I said it too. Thank um, you. There you Thank go. you so much. There you go. Probably the most famous person that I ever did was Ozzy Osbourne. We had a rock concert and he was one of the, he was one of our performers and I met him and I swear to God, Michelle, like I swear I didn't understand not one word, not one word he said to me was English. Not one. I did not understand anything he said to me, but when he, and, but like his wife, I totally understood what she was saying. And then when he got on stage, he was like completely clear. Like every word I understood what he was saying. It was so weird. Like so weird. <laughs> having a one-on-one conversation with him, not a word on stage, totally understood everything he said. It was just so bizarre. Wow. Generally, 90% of the time, totally not worth bringing in a celebrity unless it's a concert and they're going to do it for free and you don't have to deal with like writers. Otherwise, not so much. Hey, Ashley, I think it's time for you to pause the episode and I think we need to do a mansplain across America. We haven't done one of those in a while, so I think it's time. So I hear this a lot from board members or from donors about bringing in celebrities to help represent a nonprofit. And while I know Michelle and I talked about how it's not always a good idea, here's how I would tell you to use a celebrity. If you have a celebrity who really truly is willing to sit on a board and write you a check and actually volunteer, great. But most of the time what they want is to be able to put stuff in their socials, they wanna be able to show the world that they're doing it, and they also wanna donate things to you to sell off. And so honestly, if you do have contact with a celebrity, I would tell you to help them spread awareness about your organization and have them start a challenge of giving you money. That's a really great way to do it. And then the other way is there's a ton of online auctions out there. Find one that won't take a huge percentage of the income that you get and then auction off some really cool items, items that you would want to buy. That is how I would tell you to use a celebrity. What if you know Oprah? And if you know Oprah and you're listening to this show, that means that Ashley and I are one step away from meeting Oprah ourselves. Give us a call. Thank you so much for that illuminating information on how to best use celebrities to promote your nonprofit. Now back to this episode with Michelle Brodnax of the Los Angeles Education Partnership. If I handed you a check for $10 million and you're not allowed to give it to your current organization, what is the cause, not the nonprofit, but what's the cause that you give it to? You know what? I, I love education and, you know, education has been both a personal joy and a professional kind of happy place for me, but I would probably donate it to food security organizations, because I feel like that safety net service is still such a tremendous need for so many families. And I don't necessarily mean just a food bank, but I mean something that, even though it probably would be a food bank as well, but it would likely be an organization or an entity that really focuses on education and growing food and being connected to what people are consuming nowadays and understanding a food system. I think that's really important for kids to be, to know and to learn about. And it's one of the pieces of our culture that I feel like we're so 
far removed from nowadays that I would love to support that. It's one of my, I, I'm an avid gardener. So I really believe in, you know, kids knowing that a carrot doesn't come from the grocery store. It's, it's actually grown. First of all, I love that you talked about kids knowing that. And I think it's really important. You know, I have a lot of parent friends who ask what their kids should do just to volunteer. And I think hunger is real and poverty, sure, but hunger is really important for kids to understand. I think it is something that they can understand. Mm -hmm. So the shelter that I ran in New York, we had a soup kitchen and we had a food pantry. And I was blown away, totally blown away by the people who came to the food pantry for food who couldn't afford it, right? And it was like senior citizens and people looking like normal people who absolutely could not afford food. And it was really eye-opening for me to see just how truly lucky and blessed I was, right? And am. Mm -hmm. And I think kids can understand that when it comes to food and kids can understand that when they're collecting food to donate to a shelter or whatever it is, a food bank, and then Mm -hmm. seeing who needs it. I think that's really important. So thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's one of the favorite things that I I like to be able to do at school sites is kind of bring in that notion of a school site garden. So people can, it's an on-road and it's an engaging bit of project-based learning that really opens the door to hunger issues, food security, and being connected to what you consume and having it um, delivered to you in a relatable way. So, so yeah, it's just a, a personal kind of love of mine for sure. And actually one of our interviews on this on this podcast is a friend of mine who started a Beverly Hills Community Farm and that's what they do. That's their mission. You know, it's interesting when I asked you about fundraising. So she's a founder and she's having a hard time fundraising because it just doesn't, it's not the first thing that she knows how to do. And so mm-hmm. I, this kind of show is really important for folks out there who want to start a nonprofit. And that fundraising question is so important. So you moved from being a fundraiser to an executive director. So I have a few questions for you because I will never go back to being an executive director again. So tell me, first of all, like why in the world do you want to be an executive director of a nonprofit, especially by the way, in COVID? Like what about being an executive director just brings you joy? There are a number of things that bring me joy, but I think the the first thing that I would like to say about LAEP and what has really continually just made me happy is seeing people grow, seeing staff people in a variety of positions, whether they're entry level or mid-level or even director level, kind of evolve and engage in their um, specific domain and growing through the challenges of, of navigating both their department or their work and the the current context that we're living through. And I have to say, when I accepted the job at LAEP, COVID wasn't a thing yet. Who knew that it was going to be a thing, but I had a, a good, I think, 14 months of relative peace before COVID came about. And I say all the time, I've certainly had trial by fire because being a new CEO has its own um, set of, of skill building and learning curve that you have to engage in and then add on a layer of, of COVID and navigating an organization through COVID. It's, it's been like, I would be silly to say it's been anything but incredibly challenging, right? And incredibly difficult. But again, seeing people grow through this is incredibly rewarding. 
And I have a team of people who are thoughtful and I've been lucky enough to witness their growth through this time. Okay. All right. I want to point you out for one second and and give you credit for one thing. So when you said I accepted the position, you don't just like accept a position. You actually have to apply and you have to interview and you're going up against tons of other people who want this position. Like it isn't just you just accept a position. It's work to get that job. Absolutely. Yeah. So like, I want to make sure that you get the credit you deserve. You worked for this job and they picked you over many other people. So like, that's, that's important. It is. Yes. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. So you told me what brings you joy. I'd like to know what is the hardest part about your job. What like on Saturday night when you're like, damn it, I only have one more day before I go back to the office. Forget about working because you're working 24 seven. But like, what's the hardest part of the job? I think for me, hands down, the human resources aspect of it. And it's not the people, it's the technical field of human resources. And quite frankly, that's exacerbated through COVID because there's so many compliance details and it's just very, very challenging to navigate that in such a way that you are really creating the structures and systems so that your staff feel like they're being cared for and supported in this moment in time, which is critically important. So I think for me, that is a pain point. One of the things that I found to be really difficult when I was an executive director was that my staff just didn't understand I think the work and the stress and the expectations of being an executive director. And mm-hmm. a big part of the show is talking about the life of an executive director and you know what you go through. So tell me what you think is unfair that staff expect from an executive director. I hope this doesn't sound like a, a tone deaf response, but you know, CEOs, executive directors were human beings, right? And this unparalleled access to what I call our emotional body just seems like so unfair, right? We too are navigating uh, this unprecedented moment in time, both with our own families, our own set of concerns about our health and our well-being and the well-being of those that we love. And I think that that oftentimes gets lost when you're talking to staff people who don't think that you have or that you share many of the same concerns that they do, right? Like I, I've spent a good chunk of the pandemic for a good example of this, worried about my 81-year-old mother. And I moved closer to her at the beginning of the pandemic, sold my house, bought another place very close to her so I could be close by. And I think that 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 is something that I often kind of struggle with personally, that I feel like I need downtime. I need a moment to recharge so that I can be fully present and available for others. And I don't always get everything right all the time. And that's just my humanity being brought forward. I think that it's the access to our emotions and maybe the lack of acceptance of our humanity just a little bit, you know? I don't know if that's a great answer, but that is my answer. That's no, all I first of all, I think that's the perfect answer. I do not believe that's tone deaf at all, at all, at all. Actually, if you have staff who are listening to this, but we both know that staff don't listen to their bosses because they don't want to hear them. But if you actually <laughs> do, or if you have board members who are listening, one way or the other, 
there's something that's important for bosses to always check in with their staff and saying, how are you doing? What's going on? Do you need anything? Cool. But it really should be the other way around as well, where staff should always be checking in with their executive director or their director of development, whatever it is, and saying, how are you? Like, what's going on with you? I don't think that that's tone deaf. I think that just because you're the boss, it doesn't mean that you're not going through the same bullshit that everybody else is. You may sure be making more money. Okay. But that's not the only thing. And I think that that's really important. So I actually really appreciate that you said that. And I hope, I hope, Michelle, that you have at least one staff person, one employee who listens to this and then comes to your office, I don't know, the next day or the next week and said, hey, how are you doing? Like, I'm just checking in on you. I, you know, I will say, and I want to give LAEP, my staff and my team props. I have a few who will occasionally kind of ring me up or text me and say, hey, Michelle, I just want to see how you're doing. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate when that happens. It's so powerful and it means so much um, to me just to hear it. Um, from them, whether, and I probably lie and say I'm doing great, but that's not the point. The point is, is that somebody reached out and was willing to kind of set their own concerns aside for that moment and just check on me. I appreciate it. So you're lucky. And I want you to do me a favor then. And the next time that somebody does ask you how you're doing, be honest, like it's okay. It's yeah. Okay. Obviously like you never want your boss to break down on you. That's not what we want, but uh, (laughs) I think it's okay for you to just be like, Hey, like I'm having a crappy day. Like I'm just having a crappy day. And thank you for asking. I'm very, very lucky that I also have some of my team check in on me and saying, Hey, you seem really stressed out today. Like, is there anything you need? And being an executive director, being a CEO is an impossible job. So I, I appreciate you saying that. And anybody who's listening who has a boss, like even if you hate that person so much, not to say that they hate you, Michelle, but even if you do hate that person <laughs> so much, just ask, like just check in. It doesn't hurt and it will make their day. So It will make their day, absolutely. So mm-hmm. if, if I said to you, Michelle, I just want to be an executive director, First of all, what do you say to me? And then second of all, what's your advice? My first question is what is your why? Like, why do you wanna do this work? And are you willing to set aside some of your own ambitions and really lead people from behind, if you will? I mean, I know that's like a, a cliche, but you really do have to learn to set yourself aside and some of your own agenda aside in order to allow for the collective to bring some of their work forward as well, because that is empowering. It's good for the mission. It's good for the organization. So I would want to know somebody's why, and then just make sure that this is somebody who knows how to be somewhat selfless and recognizes that that's going to be a part of what they have to learn to do or already know how to do. And then I think my advice would be, be prepared to learn what you were not expecting to have to learn. (laughs) You know what I mean? What what maybe you thought you already knew. You're going to learn that different, that lesson from a different perspective in a different way and, and likely be incredibly humbled by the lessons that you learn in the process and be willing to, to digest that and incorporate that and make that a part of your leadership style. One of my favorite aspects of 
any person, whether they're a CEO, executive director or not, is one's willingness to grow and evolve. And, and this is the role for sure, hands down, without question, that if you are unwilling to grow and evolve, it's going to be really hard for you to hang in for any extended period of time. So that would be what I have to say. What was that one lesson for you that you learned? What was that one thing? There's more than one way to get to solve to the sum of nine. You know, four plus five equals nine, but so does eight plus one. Like there are many ways to get there. And I'm not always right about the way to get there, to get to the solution is what I mean. So I think that was definitely my biggest lesson to date and certainly one of my most humbling. I appreciate that. Not everybody can can admit that. And I appreciate that because I do think that's really important. And I also think that truly what makes a strong leader in the nonprofit space is to say like, hey, I don't know. I don't know. And here's what my team is for. Let's have this conversation. So I think that's really important. And if you're hiring great people, don't you want to bring forward their expertise and their greatness as well? And in terms of solution finding, that's, that's what they're there to do as well. So step back and like give people room to shine too and, and contribute and value that contribution. Now I'd love to talk about your organization and I'd love for you to tell folks what LAP does, but then also what made you want to take it over? What made you want to lose sleep every single day uh, Mm. to run this organization? So LAEP is a 38-year-old educational equity nonprofit organization. We've been in Los Angeles primarily partnering with LAUSD, but a lot of other districts as well through the years in bringing forward education transformation from our term is diapers to diplomas. So we have a variety of programs that bring that work forward. We have an early Head Start program that serves 200 families in South Los Angeles, Inglewood, and Hawthorne. We have Transform Schools, which is our our brand of bringing forward education transformation at the school site level and at the district level through community school work, college and career readiness with students directly, as well as family and community engagement. And then finally, we have CORE, which is our acronym for Cultivating Organizational Resilience and Empowerment, which is our trauma-informed work that we bring forward with school site administrators and leaders. And all of that really comes together to like shape educational trajectory and support, you know, equitable outcomes for all students, regardless of zip code. So you just used some terms that I think people don't understand. And so I wanted, Uh, if you would, in terms of core, you said trauma-informed, right? Can you explain what that means to our listener? I will do my best. I am not an expert in trauma-informed practice, but really what it is, it's the idea of understanding that both students and teachers have trauma that they contend with on a regular basis, particularly in schools that are low-income schools or in communities that are typically or traditionally have been underserved. And it's the awareness of that trauma when you're interacting 
with both a student and a student with a teacher, that there are certain practices that you can bring forward that support that awareness and facilitate learning and growth. So our trauma-informed practice is really to make sure that teachers are bringing that awareness forward when they're in a classroom full of, let's just say, seven-year-olds who are maybe in a classroom for the first time since COVID, right? Possibly. And, and that they're equipped to manage like what that means for a student on a day-to-day uh, basis. Thank you. Trauma-informed care is really important and people talk about it all the time and I don't think people necessarily know what that means. How are we going to come out of COVID and get kids like back to pre-COVID levels, right? Like how are we going to fix what this has broken for the last two years? Yes, I think that is the question of the day. I sit in a number of meetings, statewide, local, you name it, where that is where we center ourselves as practitioners. How do we recover from the, this epic disruption? And, and I don't know that anyone has the full answer for that, right? Like that is what the pandemic has done, I think for all of us is it's like really brought us down to exploring answers and doing that discovery together. And as it's unfolding, if you will. So I think that we bring forward obviously expertise in trauma-informed practice, but we don't bring forward a tremendous amount of expertise in knowing what happens when students lose instructional hours for not just a semester, but years at this point. So the learning loss, I don't have the answers for that, and I don't know that anyone does, but what we do know is that we have to connect on a human level with people and meet those basic needs that will allow for students to come back into a classroom feeling seen, feeling cared for, and feeling prepared to learn. And that is that is not what educators have traditionally been trained to do. They've been trained to teach and educate. They haven't been trained to um, necessarily behave from the perspective or from the position of a social worker. But I do believe those two concepts and ideologies are going to have to come together in some um, significant way in order to address this for this generation of students. That's the best answer I have at the moment. And I think we're discovering it as as time goes on, for sure. No, I think that that's, again, this is a fluid process. I mean, we're not even, schools are canceled again now. So, and I think for parents or caregivers or whomever is taking care of kids, it's exhausting. This is an unfair question, Michelle, and I realize that it's an unfair question. If you have any like nugget of advice or information, I don't know, something that a parent or caregiver can do moving forward with their kid, you know, something, whatever it is, is there some, some one thing that they can be like, hey, I can do this on a daily basis. That's not so complicated to help their kids going back into school and going back into society. Yeah. I've said since the beginning of the pandemic that this generation of parents are the real MVPs, right? Like they have had to navigate changes in their professional life, homeschooling their kids, acting as chef, acting as entertainment kind of specialist for many families, not one child, but two, three or more. 
Um, so parents are the real MVPs through all of this, honestly, parents, teachers, they're really doing an exemplary job. And I, the advice that I would give to anyone, quite frankly, navigating a really challenging time and where people are dependent and reliant upon you is to take care of yourself first. Um, you cannot give to children when you're depleted and exhausted. If it's a small thing that you can do for yourself every day, like take a short walk alone, even if it's just 10 minutes or like try to like lock yourself in the bathroom and like read a book, some small thing to feed yourself every day will help you as you work to help your child regulate through this process. Because children are resilient and I'm not saying ignore them or anything along those lines, but our children are going to be fine if they have great parents to support them through this. And that great parenting comes from within and radiates outward. So I would say take good care of yourself and you will have the bandwidth to, to support your children through this process. That's the most critical thing. Okay, and what can we do for teachers? gosh, pay them a million dollars a year. Like if it were up to me, pay them more, equip them, support them, listen to them, know that they are experts in instruction and what's happening inside of a classroom with your, your children, regard them in a much more kind of intentional and professional manner. Teachers are not people who kind of failed into teaching. They selected it. And we have great teachers out there who have been truly navigating some of the toughest waters ever in education. I think that supporting teachers as, as professionals and like really giving them what they need in this moment in time to feel good about hanging in with the profession is, is the most critical thing we could give to a teacher. That's my opinion. But I would certainly lean in and just ask a teacher, what do you need? And defer to that. So this goes all back to what we were talking about, about being also an executive director in that you should just check in. Even if you are a parent and you're so frustrated because say the teacher union just voted to like shut down school again and you're just so angry. Okay. But when everybody comes back, like ask those teachers, hey, what do you need? Is there something I could do for you, right? Mm -hmm. Ask your boss, is there something I can do for you? Ask your employee, is there something I can do for you? And if you are a board member, please ask your CEO or your executive director, is there anything I could do for you? Because especially mm -hmm. now in all of this COVID bullshit, this is our third year we're going into, Michelle, yeah. our third year. We need to just check in with each other. I can't deal with this anger anymore. It's as simple as checking in with each other and that extending that notion of care that I think in many ways our society had forgotten about. We can just say, hey, how are you doing? And think of how many different audiences just in this discussion that we've thought about telegraphing that message to where it would go a long way if they heard something like that. I think it's a powerful, powerful statement in this moment in time. Can I, can I tell you something that's totally lame and it's going to make me sound so shallow, but I don't care. It just is. It's okay. It's my show, right? Okay. Yeah. It's your show. I want somebody out there to fucking send me a DM. I've been saying this for the last year. Just send me a DM that says, Hey Matt, how are you doing? That's what I want. Uh... I'm, putting it out there. I'm putting it out there. <laughs> 
Hold on to your hat for that one. Hold on to your hat. It might be from me now that you know. <laughs> no one's going to do it. No one, no one listens. So, okay. I, I love everything. I adore you. Tell our listeners where they can go online and to write you a huge check at LAEP. Where can they go find you? www.laep.org. And there we are front and center. You can kind of take a look at our website and our donate page. We would love to have you just visit the site and learn a little bit more about what it is that we do. And there are tons of volunteer opportunities as well that are virtual volunteer opportunities that people can engage in and get to know us. We're an awesome, awesome crew doing incredible work in the community. So yeah, come by, take a look. Is there anything else that you would like to share about life of a CEO or just LAEP, anything else that you'd like to share before I let you stop suffering? I think that the only thing that I would like to say to my fellow executive directors, CEOs, take good care of yourself in this moment in time. And it's okay to prioritize yourself and self-care that you can engage in on a regular basis. Please do it. Stability is so important and our mental health and well-being, um, especially for leaders of color and women is critical. So please do that. Take good care of yourself in this moment in time. And the last thing I want to say to you, Matt, is I hope that my answers were coherent because my drink is almost gone. And there was quite a bit of vodka in here. So I hope you actually got a good show out of this. No, it was was spectacular. You were amazing. The one thing I love about this show is being able to showcase folks like you who are just so spectacular in their job and... Now you have a chance for people, hopefully across the country, to listen and understand what you go through and your journey to where you are and just be so appreciative of A, you, right, running the organization, but then also what the organization does and what you do and what your staff do and what we're all going through. And so it brings me joy to be able to do this, brings me joy for you to now be showcased out there, especially because you were a listener, makes me happy. And- Overall, just thank you so much, Michelle. You're awesome. And I hope that you have an employee who asks you how you're doing. I hope you get a huge check tomorrow because you're on this show. And (laughs) and whenever you'll let me do it, which you're never going to let me do it, I'm going to recruit you for that next big, amazing gig. But as your (laughs) board members are listening to this, of course, you're not going to ever come anytime soon, but I'm going to get you. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I think you're amazing too. I've always adored you and your team and the work. And also just a really quick thank you for the great recruitment that you supported us through. We have a wonderful new um, director of finance starting and in large part because of the commitment for your from your team. So thank you for everything. You're incredible. And thank you for what you do for the sector. Like really appreciate it. Thank you, Michelle. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Matt. So uh, what'd you think? Again, I absolutely love that episode. Shout out to teachers. Hardest job other than being a healthcare worker right now. Agreed. It's an impossible job. Also, you know, I don't particularly like children, but I just can't imagine what it's like to have 80 kids in one room versus even one. I mean, and like 80 kids who are coming in after having been Zoom schooled and like loss of socialization and social skills, 80 kids who are at home with parents who are totally stressed out and are feeding off of that and coming back into the classroom. 
it's just the list goes on and on of, of what compounds an already difficult job. Thank you, Ashley, because our, our last and final listener who's driving her car just drove herself off a cliff. <laughs> Was she a teacher? I'm <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> Yeah, so I appreciate that uplift moment of yours. Thank you. Thank you, Ashley. It was just a moment of empathy and mm-hmm. acknowledgement. No, it's true. I, I fully agree. I'm just joking. It is an impossible job. And organizations like Michelle's are just so vital right now. And I do want to remind everybody, as we talked about, so three days ago, Michelle texted me and she's like, hey, Matt, just checking in as I promised you I would. How are you doing? And I wrote her back and I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm so impressed that you remembered because... I don't even remember what day it is anymore. And so I do want to remind everybody in all seriousness that like, it is really important that you check in on your friends or your family members, or if you're on a board of a nonprofit, your executive director or your teacher, and just be like, hey, how are you doing? And that's it. Like, this just makes people feel good. And Michelle checking in on me made me feel good. So Michelle, thank you. It meant a lot to me. And I love that you and Michelle mentioned that this checking in thing is a two-way street. I was talking to my husband, Mark Watterson, who is the CEO of a nonprofit, and I was telling him about this interview, and I brought that part up because I thought it was so poignant about the importance of, of checking in, and not just with the executive directors checking in on their staff, which everyone sort of expects, but to have it go both ways. And Mark's point was, I'm always checking in with my staff and reminding them that the job is not the be-all, end-all, that your family, your personal health, these things are more important. And he's like, because I feel it's my job to shoulder the burdens of the organization. Like that's my job to absorb and deflect that. That, Those are his words. And I thought that's totally awesome. And that is what a good leader should do, but it's also totally acceptable and lovely for the employees to check in on their superiors too. Yep. Because we're all just humans trying to get through this shit. A hundred percent. And it is shit. Anyway, Matt, switching gears to a topic that hopefully will not make people want to drive their cars off the road. Tell people what you see me wearing right now. I see you wearing a hat that says Casey on it. I am wearing my Chiefs hat proudly this past Sunday. And it's okay for me to timestamp because this episode comes out this week. This past Sunday was what people are calling the greatest playoff game ever between my Kansas City Chiefs and the Buffalo Bills. And so I will be rooting on my Chiefs yet again to go to a Super Bowl for the third time in a row. And that is my bright spot, Matt, in this crazy, crazy world. So what I'm going to say to that is, first of all, is Kansas City in Kansas or is it Oklahoma? (laughs) Um, I'm so glad you know your geography. Kansas City is actually in Missouri, but it does border Kansas as well. But those of us who are from Missouri, like me, we pretty much ignore the Kansas side of things because all the cool stuff is in Missouri, Mm -hmm. Um, like Chiefs Stadium. Got it. Got it. Okay. And second of all, I believe that the fact that Tom Brady lost and like, you know, like lost I feel like that may be the best game ever. Not the Kansas City win, but the Tom Brady defeat. Yeah, no, Tom Brady's ridiculous. And you and I share that hatred for the Patriots. Bill Belichick also suffered a crushing defeat in the yeah. playoffs. Yes, and, and this is the most heterosexual conversation I'm going to have all year. <laughs> and, and, and all year just started. So that means something, Ashley. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, well, we will sign off on this show because we know people have to get 
ready to watch some football coming up this weekend. But before you sign off, don't forget to subscribe to uh, our podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, You can also stream the podcast on YouTube. And as always, you can find more information about our show at our website, envisionnonprofit.com slash podcast. Go Chiefs!